You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Karen Healy. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Katie Brisky. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with... 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to sit down with some extraordinary creators to explore their craft in the never-ending quest to improve our own. The never-ending quest, indeed. And in the never-ending quest for me to have every awesome co-host I possibly could, Katie Brisky, thank you so much for sitting in the co-pilot chair with me today. It is my never-ending quest to appear on as many awesome podcasts as I can. <laughs> so thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm glad to to know that the round table is on that list. We've checked one more thing off of your bucket list. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, what happens? <laughs> Very cool. Well, Katie, let's let's dive into the goodness uh, that is the round table and let me let me introduce you to uh, our guest host for this episode of 20 minutes with. Um one of the things that I love about this podcast is I get the opportunity to say things that I honestly never dreamed I would say. Like, our guest host was born in, oh God, Fung, Fungare. Did I get it? Fungare. Fung, Fungare. Fungare, <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> For the people of Fangare, that may seem pretty commonplace, but for a Canadian and a guy from Tennessee, that's pretty freaking awesome. Hey, now, I I lived in uh, Dunedin for six months. I heard Fangare quite a bit. That's true. That's true. Katie Katie has walked these paths and spoken this speak uh, clearly longer and much better than I have. (laughs) But just just. Hold my hand, Katie. We'll get through this, I swear. Uh, she was the first of four siblings, uh, which pretty much granted her absolute dominion over the other three. Uh, and while there were many childhood events that embody the creative powerhouse that she was destined to be, I think the most telling may be when her parents foolishly gave her a rubber stamp with her name on it. Now, I'm sure they had these these wonderful visions of her stamping envelopes and construction paper drawings, they could not have anticipated the sudden appearance of her daughter's name on kitchen appliances, bathroom fixtures, every door in the house, and a few buildings in downtown Fangare. Now, as a child, she had the instinct to leave her mark upon the world, and as an adult, she has fulfilled that urge. Now, at that tender age, she had charted her career path as either an astronaut or a dinosaur-riding cowgirl, Uh, and given the state of genetic research these days, neither of those options is off the table just yet. <laughs> but uh, when, when her family moved to Otematata, uh, she had the unenviable experience, as so many of us have, of being bullied by the entrenched local kids. But these hardships drove her to concoct epic tales in her head of her being utterly fabulous, an example of childhood instincts manifesting into adulthood. 
her parents were both of an academic inclination, both teachers, and her mother ultimately becoming the principal of one of the schools our guest host attended. Uh, and I can affirm from experience that having parents who are teachers is the best way to get the experience of having your work edited and critiqued out of the way at an early age. Uh, uh, and it also doesn't hurt that at nine years old, author Gaylene Gordon told our guest host to keep on with her writing. <laughs> it was also at nine years old, she was denied access to Tolkien's The Two Towers by her local library. But, of course, her parents were teachers, and what teacher is going to deny their nine-year-old daughter her desire to read Tolkien? Of course, they bought the whole series for her, and she gobbled it up. Uh, moving forward in the narrative, she attended the University of Canterbury in Christ Church because she liked the architecture. <laughs> that architecture, by the way, would be featured as the setting of her book, Guardian of the Dead. Uh, now, she contemplated being a lawyer, but was driven off by the mountains of tedious paperwork, uh, settling for a dual major in English and classics. And... As has been the case for many a guest host on the roundtable, she also indulged in the singular delights of theater and stage performance. I, I Honestly, Katie, I think that's a prerequisite for anyone becoming a successful writer. You must have trod the boards at one point. Mm -hmm. uh, so now, when this episode goes live, uh, uh, we will be in the full froth and fervor of the madness that is NaNoWriMo. And dear listeners, you will be delighted to know that around this time in our guest host's life, uh, uh, she was literally rocking the NaNoWriMo. Uh, she was also writing a bunch of short stories and fanfic as well. So, and you can almost hear the resonance with thousands of other writers out there. I can hear it. It's deafening and fabulous. Uh, so now at this point, she's feeling the itch to travel. She applied to and was accepted into the Japanese exchange and teaching program. Uh, and it was a transformative experience experience for her. And in addition uh, to teaching English, she also helped found during this time a feminist comics website, girl-wonder.org, where she continues to contribute through the associated blog, Girls Are Reading Comics and They're Pissed, <laughs> which is awesome. If you have not been to read this, go. Our guest host has many poignant points to raise on this particular topic. Uh, she also co-wrote a few books with her BFF and wrote what would become Guardian of the Dead. Uh, she started attending conventions, and in May of 2006, she presented a paper entitled The Secret Origins of Jessica Jones, the feminist anti-superhero in Brian Michael Bendis' alias at WISCON 30. Now, a year later, in 2007, she would return to WISCON and attend a writing workshop with one of her literary heroes, Holly Black. Holly Black read our guest host's manuscript and then recommended it to her agent, Barry Goldblatt. Holy crap! Now, now friends, there's an important point here. When she mailed her manuscript to Goldblatt, she executed what I consider to be a brilliant strategy that summarizes her resilience and determination. She put Marvel comic stamps 
on the return address envelope. That way, if she was rejected, she would have Electra and She-Hulk there reminding her that she's still a badass. I highly recommend this tactic for anyone submitting their work with a self-addressed stamped envelope. Uh, but of course, there was no rejection. There was a phone call, followed by a shopping of the novel and its eventual publication. Now, while this is all going on, our guest host has been drafting the next chapter of her life titled, I Go to Graduate School. <laughs> she applied for several PhD programs, got accepted at the University of Melbourne, Australia, where she began drafting an intriguing dissertation with the working title, Power and Responsibility, Fan Creators, Fan Consumers, and the Modern Superhero Comic, but which she secretly calls Superhero Comics Are Really Fan Fiction, and that's quite interesting. <laughs> which we quite agree. Uh, now, as exhilarating as the PhD experience was for her, several challenges manifested. First, it was getting difficult to manage a burgeoning literary career with the demands of her PhD program. Second, she really wanted to teach, but she's more of an in-the-trenches kind of person, uh, and the rarefied halls of higher academia just weren't cutting it. So she moved back to New Zealand, where she's currently training to be a high school teacher of English, classics, and media studies at the New Zealand Graduate School of Education. Now, her fiction includes Guardian of the Dead, The Shattering, When We Wake, and the recently released sequel, While We Run, and in a wonderful bit of synchronicity, both Holly Black and our guest host were nominated for the 2013 Andre Norton Awards, Black for The Coldest Girl in Cold Town, and our guest host for When We Wake. She likes good comics, strong liquor, and excellent chocolate. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, Karen Healy. Karen, I can only imagine what, I've used this word a lot this evening, I'm going to use it again, what a froth your life must be right now. Uh, uh, so we are so, we are so very grateful that you took the time to join us for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you very much. May I make a mild clarification? Please, by all means. I, I obviously need to update my um, biography because I've graduated from um, teacher training and I am now a teacher in the trenches with young women teaching them That's awesome. Congratulations. Yes, do update that background. Uh, uh, and and dear friends, before you before you think, say this is oh yet another example of Dave's incredible stalking on the internet, uh, uh, rest assured that much of the body of this is thanks to our to to Karen's awesome bio on her website. So thank you for that. You could have just used the short version. I, not my style, Karen. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, it really isn't. It's also, not the long version is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, goes Karen Healy was born in 1981 she is not dead yet boom short concise and to the point a little scant on detail though we need we need some story arc in there so yeah you better have some narrative exactly exactly well let, let's get into our, our 20 minutes with Karen Healy uh, uh, I'll just set the timer here and we will of course ignore it because that's how we roll here at the round table um and and i'm going to lead off just a a point of clarification uh, uh in that in that lengthy and overblown uh intro i just gave you there was talk of you doing fan fiction while mm -hmm. you were doing the co-write what were you fan fictioning oh um at high school it was a lot of sailor moon when i hit you which is back now i'm so happy Yay. when yeah. 
Oh, so good. When I hit university, um, Harry Potter was the big um, fandom. So I did a lot of that. I did some of the X-Men movies, um, X-Men 1 and X-Men 2. It's such a shame they never made X-Men 3. <laughs> <laughs> such a fabulous movie. Yeah, too bad. There's only two X-Men movies. Yeah, yeah. so bad. Um, <laughs> you have strong feelings on this topic, perhaps for another very, podcast. <laughs> very strong feelings. Um, what I've been doing, I, I still write fanfic. What I've been writing under under another name. What I've been doing now is mostly um, looking at the the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the all the things that you can't do in a two and a half hour movie. All the little political details that I think are absolutely fascinating, but obviously get subsumed in favor of punching people. Um, <laughs> I get to play with those and that's really exciting. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to ask this question and it's not going to be as snarky as it sounds, but why? What, what is it about fan fiction that, that you as an author uh, find, find satisfaction in? Oh, it's so much fun. You play with somebody else's world. You get to, uh, well, not even somebody else's world. I don't believe that Marvel really belongs to a single person or a single company anymore. Right. But you get to uh, delve into details. You get to fix things you think are wrong with the story. That's always very appealing. Um, <laughs> I really regard popular culture as an interactive experience. It's something that I get to sort of stick my hands in up to the elbows and root around in there and see what I can pull out and make something new with. Do you find that it uh, supports or, or enhances your, your original fiction? All writing is good writing. Sure, um, a, sure. A lot, of, a lot of the time I will try something out in fanfic because uh, what have I been doing recently? I've been trying a thing recently where a character will never tell you how they feel. Mm. Well, um, and they will never say something like, I, I was crying. They will say something like, um, I wiped my face. Um, the the idea that you show don't tell at that very very oblique level. Um, so I've been trying that out in fanfic because if I make any mistakes there, it's not going to matter too much in terms of having to redo it or having to write it for a deadline or um, meeting an editor's standards. I only have to meet my own. So do you just keep it for yourself, or do you actually post it? Oh, I post it. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, I like praise as much as anybody. <laughs> Fair where, enough. Just out of curiosity, where do you post it? Um, archive of our own is my favorite um, sort of posting archive. I've tried a couple of others, but I, they're very friendly. The taking system's fantastic. It's pretty clear and easy. Outstanding. I'm always really fascinated with um, authors' origin stories, I guess, which is a nice segue talking about superheroes and Marvel. Um, so I guess, how did you start out? When did you know that authoring was really for you instead of being a cowboy riding cow or a dinosaur riding cowgirl, as cool as that would be? <laughs> that would be so cool, wouldn't it? Um, I guess it was sort of at the point where I realized, because I, I loved stories. That was always my thing. Um I guess at about the point where I realized that books were written by people, that they just didn't kind of magically appear, that whole idea that there was an author and they weren't dead necessarily, was really, I was like, oh, you can do that. But I never thought that I could do it for a job until I was about, you know, like 2023. 20, um, and then I decided that maybe I was going to put some real effort into researching the business of writing as well as the, the crafting of writing. But as soon as I worked out that you could, tell people stories and they would write them down and then publish them maybe in a book with some pictures or a, or a cute boy on the cover. I was all in. <laughs> Wish fulfillment. Isn't that what we want out of life for our wishes to be fulfilled? 
Absolutely. Uh, isn't that why most of us become writers? Exactly. <laughs> the more wishes on the page. I may not live in a world where cryonics is possible, but by God, I can write one. Absolutely. And a sequel to one, by God. And a sequel to one. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation with Karen Healy after this brief promotional break. Crack two plot points into a large mixing bowl. Add one cup oil of protagonist. Add a few drops of dialogue. Sift in three tablespoons of antagonist. Mince a few action scenes and make sure fully incorporated. Sprinkle liberally with minor characters. Stir vigorously. Drizzle in warm, buttery conflict. Pour into a 9 by 13 notebook. Bake at 325 degrees. Done. Done. Writing's as easy as cooking, right? Yeah, right. Writing's not easy, and you need a break. But if you're taking a break, and you're not up for cooking either, come hang out in the disaster kitchen of The Melting Podcast. The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Micro stories. Interviews. Flash fiction stories back-to-back based on the same writing prompt. And most importantly, bad food puns. Because food makes everything better, right? Come dine at TheMeltingPodcast.com. Right? Now, let's get back to the conversation with Karen Healy. I Actually, I had a question. Um, Guardian of the Dead uh, uh, drew upon um, some wonderful mythologies. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is fabulous on many levels uh, uh, because it weaves in that whole ancient narrative and ties it in to to a contemporary tale and, and makes them relevant. Can you share with our listeners your process of maybe not necessarily researching those those mythologies, but how you chose which parts to integrate into your narrative for your stories? Okay, well, that's that's a really interesting question. I actually just gave a paper on this at a classics conference. Perfect. Um, where the the major influences in Guardian of the Dead, it's a story about stories. It's about the way that stories influence people, about how they write people and about how they write the land. In New Zealand, they literally write the land. Um, we have the stories of Maui, who is a trickster god, who uh, sort of demi demigod who um, went fishing one day in a canoe, which is Tewaka, Maui, which is the South Island where I'm currently speaking to you from, and um, Te Ika, Maui, the fish of Maui, which is um, the North Island in English. So these stories created the land, if you tilt your head slightly. And I thought that was fascinating, so I wanted to talk about that. Um, I was living in Japan, and I was homesick. And so like a lot of New Zealand writers, um, you live in somewhere else and then you write about New Zealand. And when you live in New Zealand, you write about somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I wanted to write about um, those mythologies, which weren't mined by my heritage, but um, were connected to me by virtue of living in New Zealand and having those stories around me as I grow up. Um, And also the classical mythologies, the Greek and Roman legends that had been part of my study and part of my fascination when I was um, younger was reading these ideas about different gods. I was raised Catholic and it it took a while before I realised that I was supposed to give some sort of special divinity or realness to this one god whose name was just God 
as opposed to these other people. Um, they sort of all mixed together in my head. So I sort of wanted to pull out what the effects would be on a young woman who was studying classics and who wasn't particularly sure of herself or her place in the world, who had been moved away from her home, not to another country, but to another island in New Zealand, and was trying to navigate a path between her personal history and the histories and stories of others. So that's where Guardian of the Dead comes from. It features... Ooh, I don't know how many spoilers I want to give away. <laughs> as many as you feel comfortable with. That's right. That's right. It features a descent into the underworld, which is a motif both in um, Greek mythology, particularly with Persephone, who was um, abducted by Hades and then forced to marry him. Um, she was able to come up six months of the year, but when you're still married to the guy who raped you, I'm not sure that's much of a victory. <laughs> and um, Orpheus, who goes into the underworld to rescue Eurydice, but and, and has faith enough to go down into the underworld, but not enough faith to bring her all the way out back with him. Um, he gives up and turns around. That, that's that's the, the sort of the Greek stories that concentrate on that underworld. And there's a, a really Roman um, epic called the Aeneid, which is Aeneas goes into the underworld and sees the future of Rome and then comes back out uh, through the gate of dream, which may mean that what he saw was not going to happen. Virgil's funny. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the Maori version has um, the trickster god Maui again turns up where he goes into the mm, – no, okay, two stories here. First story, Hine Te Tama who was the daughter and also the wife of Tane Mahuta, god of the forest. And she discovered that her father, that her husband was her father, and she found this disgusting, so she ran away underground. So unlike Persephone, for her, this, the underworld is a place of uh, refuge and strength. Mm -hmm. And when he comes after her, she sends him away. So unlike Eurydice, who is just sort of forced to sort of follow Orpheus out as far as she can, she makes a decision and sends him off. Much more empowered more, women in the Maori. Much more empowered. Yeah. It was, and I mean, it does sort of reflect how these two cultures um, have a tradition of, of treating women. Um, the, the Greek view of women was, was very chattel-oriented, and that is not seen so often. So this, uh, this goddess becomes Hine Nui Tipo, the, the goddess of death, the guardian of the dead at night. So when her children, when the human children eventually, because at this stage they don't die yet, but she knows that eventually they will die, and when they do, she will care for them. I thought that was really powerful and, and moving, that she turns something that um, might have been a victim narrative and would certainly have been a victim narrative in Greek mythology, she turns it into uh, a source of strength and um, a way where she can claim and name her role herself. So were these were these mythologies then, were these basically story prompts that the, the, the myths actually came first? That's what caught in your imagination? You built the story around them? No, what caught in my imagination was that Christchurch winters are horrible and what if they <laughs> walked out of the mist. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I like the idea of, um, I, I've always liked fairy tales, the idea of, of wicked fairies who will steal human peoples for various reasons, not the nice fairy stories, mm -hmm. the nasty ones. Um, and there are parallels there. There are Maori narratives about uh, Patupairehi or Tudehu, or they have other names, who are pale-skinned and sometimes beautiful and sometimes vicious and, and quite known for stealing humans for their own purposes. 
So I thought that was interesting. So I have a, a young woman trying to protect her best friend from being stolen um, while at the same time navigating a heady romance um, <laughs> with, with the quiet loner at her school. Always fun to have one of those around. And then there's a war basically for the fate of, of the land based on the stories that um, people want to be true or not true. That's really cool. Um, and I always really find it interesting to look at different variants of the same myth. So where do you go for your mythologies? Which versions do you go to? Um, I go to the ones that I like the most, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of classics, I mean, I, I read the Aeneid, not in Latin. I don't have any Latin or Greek. I'm a very bad classics student in, in that sense. But I read a couple of translations and I've done Greek theatre, so I was familiar with um, that. And... Um, for those listening, um, perseus.tufts.edu is a wonderful source of all sorts of classical literature if you want to go hunting. Um, for broad outlines, you can't go past Wikipedia. Um, in terms of my New Zealand mythologies, we have a lot of books here. Unfortunately, a lot of the Māori tradition is an oral tradition. So the technology of writing was introduced by Europeans and a lot of them would write down these stories in that kind of grim, like Grim Brothers way where you go around and you write down a story and then you show it to your wife and maybe she's like, I don't think this is quite appropriate, dear, and then it's a change. <laughs> um, or it's sent back to England, which was very much regarded as home by the settlers with a capital H. And then depending on the reception it was going to get there, it would be edited. So um, I did... Um, I spoke to some people who have that oral tradition handed down and they told me stories that, but it's hard to tell how many have been influenced again. Sure, because even, even an oral tradition would have some measure of shifting through the generations, I would think. Yeah, and that's that's why there are different words for the um, the fairy people and there are different dialects of Māori and there are different um, connections with rivers and mountains and different stories connected with them according to who held the land at which point. So, uh, but but I did find the Victorian uh, Victoria University text archives because remember I'm in Japan. I can't really go to the local library. Um, very very useful for for finding some stories which I could then check. And I was told some stories that I was asked not to use and didn't because really. Well, you know that's a privilege if you're if you're being told some information. Oh, yeah. sure, 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 sure. And then said, and please don't use this in your book. That's just a matter of respect, really. Sure. But you can still use that. I mean, you would not use the actual story, but that knowledge is now in your head and will certainly yes. color or infuse what you write. And, and help with perspective, mm -hmm. because I was writing from the point of view of a 17-year-old Pākehā white girl. Um, I had to make sure that there were other stories evident around her that she couldn't tell. So that was interesting. I'm not sure that I... I, I know that I didn't succeed for everybody. I know that some people um, felt that um, choosing that narrator in the first place wasn't a good idea or that I shouldn't have written the book, that I wasn't the right person to have written this kind of story. Haters are going to hate. Haters have some justification for hating. In what way, do you think? Oh, well, I'm, I'm descended from a people who came and plundered stories and plundered land. If I uphold that, I mean, I, I do my best to, to break away from that tradition, but it's, I mean, it's very hard. Those are the rules that are in my head of how one interacts with another culture's stories is, oh, I take them, um, which is not necessarily the uh, appropriate or respectful way to act. I, yeah, I'm still okay That's with having a written guardian of the dead, but there are things I would change now from, you know, 10 years on. That's actually an interesting 
perspective because with with the push in in contemporary spec fic for diversity, cultural, gender, uh, uh, sexual, and so on, uh, uh, ultimately. <laughs> I'll just say it, straight white guys like myself uh, who want to uphold that 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 initiative of of diversity of of inclusion and expanding awareness uh we're effectively you know in the same boat that you are you you want to write of the maori myths you're not of the maori therefore you're almost transgressing and honestly i i sometimes feel that way as well when i try and incorporate some of those diverse aspects into my writing uh when i i don't have a foothold into the culture i want to embrace how do you reconcile that well i think it's good to be uncomfortable because that means you're going to be taking as much care as you can. It's good to recognize that um, you will make mistakes and you will be called out on them. And that's also important. Um, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I think it's mandatory to try really. You can't, I'm not sure you can be an ethical person writing in um, current science fiction fantasy or young adult without acknowledging or making use of um, diverse stories but I think that it's it's definitely okay for us to to have qualms and to um, ask questions mostly of each other. Um, how you know how do I do this? And it's just a reminder to listen. I think. And it's great to hear you say that as well, because I know in Canada sometimes we get paralyzed by that fear of doing it wrong, mm. um, because we want to include our own native myths, but we're scared of appropriation or getting them wrong. Uh, so we just end up doing nothing, which seems very Canadian to me as I say that out loud. <laughs> um, uh, so again, yeah, so just I'll ask you then, how do you do it? Like, how have you done it in Guardian for the Dead? Um, I, I, as I said, I talked to people. Um, I had a couple of people read over the manuscript in full. Um, one woman who isn't... Um, who, who doesn't have uh, Māori whakapapa uh, genealogy herself, but she um, had made a lifelong study of the myth. So she read over one section, which was a just like the exposition fairy sprinkled her story dust and there's like three pages of, let me tell you the story, <laughs> <laughs> which again I would do differently nowadays. Uh, first, first book. I had a couple of people, um, Olive Roundhill and Loana Thomas, who are in the acknowledgements, read over the entire manuscript and make suggestions and comments. And I followed everything they said, basically. Um, and they are, of course, not representative of all Māori and they are not representative of all readers, um, but they are educators and, um, oh, it doesn't translate very well. They're women that we respect. Mm. Sorry, the, the word is mana, which doesn't translate terribly well, especially into a, a culture where we use mana to use that thing I need to cast magic spells. <laughs> <laughs> or, or gifts from God, as it were. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> see, there's more <laughs> questions to ask, but the clock is is shaking its fists at me and, and threatening to call down thunderbolts. I'm, I'm afraid that <laughs> we're out of time, uh, but... Karen, thank you so much. This this has been not only incredibly entertaining, but very enlightening uh, on a lot of different levels. And we really appreciate you taking the time for, for this 20 minutes with. Thank you, ma'am. Not at all. Katie, what are you taking away out of out of this, this 20-ish minutes of awesomeness? Uh, what are you taking away from this? 
I'm really interested by the idea of trying to include more diverse stories. Again, in Canada, it's hard because we are all about diversity, but I feel like that fear of, again, getting it wrong mm-hmm. uh, really does stick with us. And I feel like there is a lot of cultural similarities between Canada and New Zealand. Um, certainly something I noticed while I was down there. Okay. Um, so, yes, yeah, giving me, emboldening me, giving me courage <laughs> to ask and seek out those other stories. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, and, and really that... That that phrase and that that part of the discussion really pointed out to me the courage that is required, I think, of those who take up the pen, who who want to write stories and, and write meaningful stories, engaging stories, stories that that we I think we all aspire in our own way to in telling a good story to to change the world uh, in a small way. And people accuse me of hyperbole when I say, hey, your book is out there changing the world. They say, well, don't be hyperbolic. Uh, but it does, damn it! Every time somebody reads a, your words, you're 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 putting thoughts you're you're putting thoughts before them for consideration. Yeah. And if you put good thoughts, good ideas out there, then then those are being considered and weighed against everything else, and that's important. But as you say, Katie, it can be paralyzing when you feel like you're you don't have the right. You don't have you, you shouldn't. Be and sometimes doing... you don't. Sometimes you do not have the right. Right. But what you did, Karen, is you went to you went to first. What do you call them? First level source sources, uh, primary, primary sources. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, and and of course there was the desire on your part to to represent faithfully and authentically uh, uh, the cultures that you're that you're putting into your stories. So that's that's potent stuff. And that of course hit me right in the heart. But the the, the moment that, that really kind of knocked me for a loop for a second was just right at the beginning when you were saying the difference between I cried and I wiped my face. And that simple distinction is so, there are chasms between those two words, even though they mean the same thing. And and that just really kind of sent me reeling for about 30 seconds as I'm pondering the distinction and how you can apply that level of show, not tell into your writing. That was that was awesome. So, uh, You know what it is, Dave? I feel like uh, writing with empathy has been a theme of this conversation. Very much so. For things, for things like I wiped my face. It's forcing you to infer from that, to put yourself for a moment in that character's head and think, well, I'm wiping my face. Why am I doing that? Because I'm crying. Um, similarly, when you're looking at other stories, having to be sensitive, put yourself there right with empathy. Absolutely. That's another thing then that I've taken away from this. Wow. <laughs> our notepads are already full and we're not even at the workshop yet. Holy smokes. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, friends, uh, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did and that your pens were scribbling just as furiously as ours. Now, now here's the awesome thing about the roundtable. In one week's time, we're going to have Karen back and we're going to sit her down and we are going to workshop a story, which I, I again, putting on my, my prognosticator hat, my, my prophet's robes, I, I anticipate awesomeness and literary gold abounding. Uh, so, so do return uh, for that event again one week from today, and that's that's kind of a long time—one week, seven days. Katie, what should our listeners be doing between now and seven days from now? Reading good fiction, preferably by Karen Healy. Dading! I like that. I think that's a fine homework assignment because there's there's good mojo in in Karen's work. Uh, and I, of course, will say, as I always do to your friends, you find what you're looking for. So so look for the good stuff. Look for the brightly wrapped packages of joy. And if you look for them, you will find them. I promise you. We will see you in one week's time. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, 
be frothy. Be frothy, yes. <laughs> I'm adding that from now on. Be cool, be frothy, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.